0: Second, it is a crisis of mental health. At age nine, the suicide rate for boys and girls is equal. At age 10 to 14, the suicide rate for boys is double that of girls. At age 15 to 19, it is quadruple that of girls. And between the ages of 20 and 24, the boys' suicide rate is almost five times that of girls. The U.S. prison population has, as you know, about 93% males. The U.S. prison population has increased 700% since 1970. We'll learn more about the fact that it's not just males that are 93% of the prisoners, but in a few minutes we'll learn something else about those males that is common to more than 90%. Third. It is a crisis of physical health. Life expectancy, as all of us know, almost always with technology, etc., health um, increasing, medicine increasing, and its potency, almost always life expectancy becomes longer each year. Yet Americans' men's life expectancy has decreased two-tenths of a year, even as women's has remained the same. The fact that women's has remained the same <coughs> is also important because that's not good either. As opposed to getting longer, boys and men are dying earlier than fourteen out of fifteen of the leading causes of death. Even boys and men's men's sperm counts are reducing have been reducing 50, by fifty percent. Think of the impact on our daughter and son's ability to produce the next generation and the quality of their offspring. Fourth, it is a crisis of economic health. The economy is making a transition from muscle to mental or from muscle to microchip. There's, for example, 1.7 million truck drivers are predicted to be largely replaced by self-driving trucks. With the United States neglecting vocational education, young males with no high school degree have more than a 20% unemployment rate in their 20s. That's more than five times the national average unemployment rate. Fifth, and this is the one that's really a shame, is that it is a crisis of shame. Since the Boy Crisis book has come out, I've received maybe 100 letters from parents telling me some version of the fact that they're son in 7th grade is learning that hearing in school that masculinity is toxic, <coughs> that the future is um, female. Um, that they have male what? Privilege. Privilege. exactly. That they are part of a what system that dominated uh, by men? Patriarchal. Patriarchal system. Uh, they are part of a patriarchal system dominated by men to, ex- to benefit men at the expense of who? women. That they are the oppressors, and who is the oppressed? Women. That if they succeed at work, it's because of their male privilege, and if they fail, it's because they are losers. His teenage testosterone is surging, desiring about half of the girls in his class, if not more. But he learns if he moves too quickly, he's a sexual harasser. If he moves too slowly, he's a what? A loser or a woman. He wonders why equality um, doesn't include women sharing these risks of rejection and responsibility, not by option, with just the guys they're really attracted to, or the tall ones of the football players, but by expectation. In college he hears about books called The End of Men. Imagine for a moment our daughter growing up at a time predicting the end of women. No boy or girl has ever grown up before in a time that predicted the end of their gender. Anticipating the end of men is not exactly an inspiration for our son's life journey. The crisis of shame contributes to depression, to alienation, to loneliness, to withdrawal. It contributes to the crisis of mental health that I said a few minutes ago. When I, when I did the research for the boy crisis, I uncovered, I started out uncovering ten causes. But the more I mapped what led to what, the more I found out that one cause was the hub, the others were the spokes. Some spokes were secondary causes, such as schools cutting back on vocational education at recess, having few male teachers. Other spokes were symptoms more than causes, such as obesity, withdrawal, moving back home with parents, depression, suicide, ADHD, addiction to drugs, addiction to video games, and porn, just a few things. As I searched for the hub and found that boys are falling behind girls in the 56 largest developed nations, I began to see that as developed nations solved one problem, the problem of survival, they allowed new freedoms that created new problems. Developed nations typically allow more permission for divorce and for children to be born to unmarried mothers. So in the US today, 53% of women under 30 who have children do so without being married. Among women not living with a dad, some children don't know who their dad is. Few children have significant involvement with their dad. And even among the women, this is the one that surprised me the most, even among the women who are living with the dad at the time that they have the children, only 40% of the children have consistent contact with their dad after three years. Children with minimal or no father involvement, or what I call dad-deprived children, experience problems in more than 70 different areas. You'll be happy to know I'm not going to be covering all 70 areas. (laughs) Um, I, will, I document all these and then describe them in the boy crisis, but in one section, people got so sort of overwhelmed with it, they asked me to create an appendix that was just a listing of all 70 of those areas, that boy, the way boys and girls, by the way, are hurt. The children who suffer do include our daughters, who suffer in most of these 70 areas, and especially in their relationship with boys, and also with unmarried teenage pregnancy. But overall, our dad-deprived daughters suffer less than our dad-deprived sons. The daughters are at least, uh, the daughters at least have the same-sex parent, and they have more permission to express feelings and more permission to ask for help. My, My research for the boy crisis leads me to predict that there will be, in the next generation, an enormous gap between boys who become our fathers Um, who, I'm sorry, Uh, boys who become our future mentally healthy, productive citizens versus boys in crisis. And that our future mentally healthy citizens will be dead, enriched, and our future boys in crisis, dead, deprived. Before we can best prepare our sons for the future, we have to understand that the challenges, we have to understand the challenges that boys are facing. Boys are caught up in a very powerful transition that almost no one's put their fingers on. From growing up male in the past to what they're experiencing in the present. I'm going to introduce you to four st- to, to three stages, uh, starting with the past, going to the present, and what we need to do for the future. And what we need to do for the future is largely going to be in the hands of the people sitting here that I'm speaking with now. Stage one, to get a sense of the past. Uh, In the past is what I call the era of the father's Cash 22 fathering. A dad's role was to love his family by being away from the love of his family at work. The qualities dad learned to be successful at work, for example, figuring out solutions, even as employees were talking, often made him unsuccessful in love. For example, figuring out solutions, as his family was talking. In the past, with little permission for divorce, the good news was that children experienced stability. The bad news was that the children also experienced parents who lived in what I call minimum security prison marriages. Does anybody recognize a minimum security prison marriage? (laughs) Stage two, the present. Stage two I call the dichotomous era of more absent fathers and more present fathers. So about a third of children today have minimal or no father involvement. They're what I call dad deprived. About a third have the fathers experiencing the father's catch-22. Let me see if you're following me here. The father's question, too, is a dad loving his family by being away from what? Family. Family, family. <laughs> wonderful. Um, and if we walk, uh, but, and then stage three, or the third the third um, aspect of the dichotomous era, era, is if we walk through a park on a weekend, we see that about a third of children are experiencing dads who are more present and involved than fathers have ever been. They're what I call the dad-enriched, Third, stage three, the future, that I'm really speaking with you about, is what I call the development of the father warrior. If the solution to dad deprivation is dad involvement, our mandate is to call young men forth as father warriors in the future in the same way we called men forth as military warriors in the past. So, how do we motivate our boys to be father warriors in the future? It starts with knowing how boys are motivated. Boys are motivated by honoring them, needing them, and challenging them with a sense of purpose even as we are loving them. For example, historically each generation had its war. In each generation a boy received social bribes such as being called a hero, if he risked dying, so others could live. That is, a boy learned to be a hero, that to be a hero, he had to prepare to be disposable. He had to develop, therefore, heroic intelligence, which is preparation for a short life the opposite of health intelligence, or preparation for a long life. He soon learned that if he risked being disposable, his parents would be proud. My son's a Marine. Look at the uniform. And that girls would love him. That girls were a lot more attracted to an officer and a gentleman than they were to a private and a pacifist. serving either in war or as his future family's sole breadwinner, gave a boy his mandate for manhood. It gave him his sense of purpose as a man. Today, the good news is that fewer boys are needed to be disposable in war, and more women are sharing the burdens of the breadwinner role. The bad news is that this has left many boys with a purpose void. As boys with a purpose void, have become less motivated men, more women are choosing to have children without men. Very few mothers want just one more child to have to support. Additionally, more women are initiating divorce and raising children without their dads. Fortunately, since we're all in the same family boot, these new problems have new solutions. Women need involved dads so they do not feel so overwhelmed. Children need involved dads so they don't become failures to launch. And boys becoming men need father involvement as a new sense of purpose. Being a father warrior then is to challenge men with a new male sense of purpose. To honor and love them from what they achieve uh, from when they achieve that purpose, to let them know they are needed. Instead of of calling forth young men to kill and be killed overseas, we need our future father warriors to love and be loved at home. This does not mean that men will not have their traditional senses of purpose as possibilities also. Um, There's not going to be a lot of competition for doing the dirty jobs such as garbage collecting, or doing the hazardous (coughs) jobs such as construction or putting pesticides on on, on plants, Um, or dominating the death professions such as firefighters and first responders. What we can do for these young men though is to appreciate that their anticipated sacrifice of being willing to be our first responders and our firefighters Um, rather rather than shaming them by telling them they have male privilege, is to honor them and appreciate them for their sacrifice. To understand this deeply enough, to translate into our parenting, our schools, and the law, it requires understanding the answer to two core questions. First, exactly what are the consequences of dad deprivation? Consequences that lay the foundation not just for boys hurting, but for boys who hurt, to hurt us. Second, how we can motivate boys to be father warriors, to understand exactly what dad-style parenting is and why it helps children. I mentioned that this was going to be a a tough um, presentation, so I'm going to ask you to, to, to do a moment what male teachers and female teachers who understand boys do, is just to give them a, a quick break by asking you to stand up and uh, turn to your right, this way, uh, my, my left. And with the permission of somebody in front of you, um, ask her or him if they would like to have a, have a shoulder rub by you. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you bring someone in from California.
1: <laughs> All right, give
0: yourself a hand. Okay, in case the, the first point is forgotten, um, uh, the first thing I want to deal with is the consequences of data de- de- deprivation. All of the indicators of the boy crisis that I mentioned at the outside, every single one of them, education, mental health, physical health, economic health, are either caused by dad deprivation or significantly aggravated by dad deprivation. Let me look at how potent this is. Yes, it is true that poverty and the quality of your son's schools do matter. But here's the data. Boys from more highly ranked schools in wealthier neighborhoods who are dad-deprived do worse in math and science than boys from poor schools and poorer nations who are dad-enriched. This is what other socioeconomic variables control for. I am a stickler with data. My wife teases me a lot when the thousandth <laughs> footnote um, appeared in the boy book. <laughs> so um, uh, it's very important to me that a lot of the data has socioeconomic variables control for. We think of ADHD as inherent to the child, but 30% of dad-deprived boys have ADHD versus only 15% of dad-enriched boys. You'll begin to see a reason for that in a couple of minutes. Counterintuitively, the more a boy has father involvement, the more empathy he is likely to have, which I'll explain more of in a few minutes. Do you remember the suicide gap that I mentioned between boys and girls? Dad deprivation is the greatest single predictor of a boy committing suicide. Dad deprivation is also the greatest predictor of a boy being addicted to drugs, think the opioid crisis that Jerome Powell had referred to in his um, 60 Minutes. It's the biggest predictor of a boy becoming a bully and being bullied. The qualities of being a bully and a bullied person are very similar, very overlapping. In addition to doing worse in every subject that I mentioned before, a boy without dads is far more likely to be expelled and suspended. It is also the biggest predictor of a boy dropping out of school and therefore becoming alienated, runnerless and unemployed. Dad-deprived boys hurt and boys who hurt, hurt us. Dad-deprived boys are far more likely to commit crimes. The result is that we have thousands of women's centers in the United States, and we also have lots of men's centers. Those men's centers are called what? Prisons, exactly. Um, Those prisons, as I mentioned before, are 93% males, but I mentioned that I would share something else with you about those prisoners. Those prisoners who are 93% males, more than 90% of them are what? Dad deprived or dad enriched boys? Dad deprived. Dad deprived. More, um, I, I looked at uh, ISIS recruits. Uh, three female sociologists did a study of ISIS recruits and found that almost all of ISIS recruits are dad deprived, including the females who are ISIS recruits. Much smaller percentage, obviously, than males. But even there. People who do not have dads are often looking for bigger senses of purpose. And our mass shooters, my own studying of mass shooters, has led me to understand that more than 90% of mass shooters are dad-deprived. If you're looking at the Boy Crisis book, read the story of Stephen Paddock who committed, who killed uh, 58 people in Las Vegas and injured uh, 590-something the story of his father, his relationship with his father, will really touch your heart. These boys hurt, and boys who hurt, hurt us. Second, how can we motivate boys to be father warriors, to understand exactly what dad-style parenting is and why it helps children? As we've seen in each generation's war, boys will risk death if they know they are needed but they have to know why which is why boys were so much more open to fighting nazis than they were to fighting in vietnam and in afghanistan they were much clearer as to the reason they were needed my research for the boy crisis differentiates about 7 important differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting so this is By the way, these differences are average. They're very predominant, but there are many fathers that do mom-style parenting and some fathers, the mothers that do dad-style parenting. Um, But as a rule, uh, because uh, dad-style parenting is a much greater tendency toward roughhousing, toward game-playing, dads will turn pretty much anything into a game, Uh, into risk-taking, into boundaries, to less boundary-setting, by the way, but more boundary enforcement. Much more likely to be coaching, much more likely to prod children into uncomfortable spaces, places where they're not comfortable going, and even prod them by teasing them. What dads need to know, what moms need to know, is why dad-style parenting is not the only style of parenting that's important, but it's also important. Here's why. For today's dads and future dads, instead of having to prepare their son to be disposable, to be honored, we have the privilege of being able to guide our son and daughter to a sense of purpose with a dream that reflects his or her unique personality. But very frequently, parents that are inclined to encourage their children to follow their dream oftentimes neglect one important variable, which is the discipline to achieve that dream. So oftentimes when they don't have the discipline to achieve that dream, the child tries for that dream at the encouragement of the parents, fails, and over a period of time begins to fail to dream at all. Dad-style parenting, with its combination of less boundary setting that is like letting kids wander into the father into the woods or go to the playground by themselves at a the younger age that part of dad style parenting less boundary setting tends to create a comfort with risk taking and exploring dreams but another aspect of dad style parenting more boundary enforcement tends to help children have the discipline to fulfill their dreams Dads are able to enforce boundaries with minimal resentment because they first build bonds with the children um, that they went by by play, by playing in the supermarket or play by roughhousing. Let me give an example of the play by roughhousing. So it's uh, it's typical that a dad will. Um, be, you know, uh, rough-housing with his child. So, for example, he might have a wrestling match, and he'll take his three kids, and he'll throw the three kids onto the couch. Um, and the, the game is, uh, the, the three kids, you have to jump off onto my back and pin me down before I pin the three of you down together. And, you know, while he's doing this, it's, uh, and maybe the kids' names are Jim, John, and Jane. Um, I'll probably forget those names, but, you know, you'll get the, <laughs> you'll get the idea. Um, and so the three kids jump off onto the back of, uh, of the dad, and mom is looking at this and saying, "Oh my God! I feel like I have just one more child to monitor here." Um, and so, but the mom is trying to, you know, I don't want to interfere. The kids seem like they're having fun, uh, but I really just feel like, um, you know, sooner or later, somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to up crying. I just feel that in my bones. And but, you know, the truth is that she's only about 99.9% likely to be right. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so the, the kids jump off, and they're really excited to be the king, you know, the king pitter of the pitter downers. And, um, and uh, in the process of doing so, um, Jimmy pushes his brother Johnny aside, and uh, Johnny and sticks his elbow in um, in, in Jane's face. Um, Jane's younger than both of them are, and um, Dad goes, "Whoa, um, you know, sweeties, you, know, you you can't put your elbow in your, um, in, your do- in your sister's face." And uh, and they go okay 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 we got it dad we got it um, and so and then dad begins to go back to roughhousing and mom is saying wait a minute I at least thought that when the kids did get hurt like I knew they would that he'd have enough sense to stop the roughhousing doesn't he get the connection um, and so. And and so the the mother is really like, now she's feeling guilty that she didn't intervene sooner because not only was she right, but in fact she does have a child here that she has to monitor who doesn't know when to stop. Um, And so moms can think and feel this way because moms can't hear what dads don't say. And even if dad read a parenting book or a magazine on parenting, he wouldn't find out what he is doing and what the data is behind what he is doing, and he can't can't explain to mom that what's happening here is a process that leads to an increase in empathy, an increase in the children distinguishing between being assertive and aggressive, a much greater likelihood to have social skills, boundary enforcement that leads to postponement gratification. So let me see, I'll I'll deconstruct that and work that, that process. So dad goes back to roughhousing. And, and he says, but you know, he gives all the warnings about what they can't do. But when the kids go back to roughhousing, they experience what psychologists call emotional intelligence under fire. And under fire, the kids are so excited about being the number one pinner downer of dad uh, that they forget dad's warning. And because, uh, but then dad says, okay, uh, you did do exactly what I told you not to do again, even though you promised you wouldn't. That is the end of the rough housing for tonight. We'll continue tomorrow night, but no more tonight. Oh, Dad, please we'll do it again. Sorry. No more till tonight, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, Dad finds the kids going back into getting a little bit um, on the edge again, and he says, uh, and, but they now monitor themselves to a greater degree because they know that if they don't, they're gonna do what? lose the rough housing. So dad had to go back and do the rough housing again to give the kids the experience as to whether or not they learned their lesson. And so, uh, and if they didn't learn their lesson, they'll pay a consequence again. If they did learn their lesson, then we can move on to more subtle distinctions between being assertive versus being aggressive. The the kids will argue that what they did was different than what they did the night before that got the punish. That gives dad the chance to distinguish between what is being assertive versus what is being aggressive. And the kids are thinking that the kids were learning that they had to think of their sister's and brother's needs, not because they had such a generosity of empathy that they were born with, but because they knew that if they didn't think of their sister's and brother's needs, they would lose what they wanted, that empathy was in their self-interest. And so with empathy being in their self-interest, they can move to a level of being able to know how to be empathetic, and who likes people who are empathetic versus non-empathetic, who understand the differences between assertive and aggressive, These are the good social skills that lead these kids to having far more friends in school. When they have more friends in school, they're far less likely to get depressed, to be alienated, to withdraw into into video games, and so on. So, something else is happening here. Dad is also making it clear that boundaries need to be enforced, that boundaries will be enforced. And as a result of the boundaries being enforced, the kids are learning the most important single ingredient to success. They're learning postponed gratification. You all remember the, the Walter and Michelle experience, the marshmallow test um, at Stanford University, and the kids that, and that which predicted that the kids that had the greatest postponed gratification were the ones most likely to succeed, as they followed them years later. So the dad is requiring the kids to not get what they want, winning at house until they do what they need to do, and postponed gratification is exactly that formula, learning that you you can't get what you want to have until you do what you need to do first. But dad doesn't explain this to mom, and and so mom doesn't get this because nobody is taught this. So the kids without the postponed gratification, they go to school. And when, it's, uh, when, when, when a temptation for not having postponed gratification, such as an invitation to play a new video game, such as a text that comes in, um, starts to tempt them, the kids without postponed gratification respond to the text. They interrupt themselves. They therefore get lower grades in school. Uh, they don't finish their homework. They don't, um, and as a result of that, their teachers aren't as um, praise, praising them as much as a result of that the parents are talking about their sister or brother who has more postponed gratification with a greater amount of pride. Male, female, um, when the kids don't respect the kids that, that um, don't do as well because it's not just homework that they fail at. If they have a gift of being a soccer player or a gymnast or an actor or actress, um, they they don't have the discipline to fulfill those gifts. So in no sphere do they learn good social skills that are, that are coupled with respect, so they start feeling ashamed of themselves, and they tend to withdraw into what becomes the boy crisis. They they tend to withdraw into video game addiction. They tend to withdraw, when it comes to boy-girl time, the boys still being attracted to more than half the girls in the class are now finding that the girls are not interested in dating losers and that they're put in the category of being a loser. So what do they turn to to substitute for the actual female? They, They turn to porn. Because porn is access to a variety of attractive women without fear of rejection at a price that they can afford. And so that's basically the way I define pornography. The problem with pornography, aside from moral problems, let's set those aside for a moment, the, the problem with pornography is that it addicts the boy's brain to greater and greater amounts of dopamine uh, so that he's not able to get sexually excited until he increases the risk, increases the, um, the, the amount of um, excitement, um, artificial excitement that, it, that is, is stimulates him. So when he, when he finally does have a female that's interested and he starts trying to act out with her the things that are in porn, the female feels objectified. Why? Because she's being objectified, um, and so um, and so she withdraws from him, which convinces him, in fact, that he is a loser, and therefore he goes back to what to to more and the cycle continues. Now, those are some of the, um, the next to worst case scenarios, but in the worst case scenario, if you read that story of Stephen Paddock and some of the other mass shooters. The boys, you start seeing, they feel like they, they're they oftentimes brought up, they're usually quite sensitive, they're often quite intelligent, and they start resenting that girls say they want sensitive males, but they don't really want sensitive males. They want the football players, they want the, the performers. And so they begin to build resentment toward girls. They begin to build resentment to all the people in school that never really appreciated who they were and respected them. and so. That, um, and so they have this enormous desire to prove themselves, to wish, that if they did something, that they could get people to say, you know, I should have paid more attention to Jimmy. I should have paid more attention to Stephen. I feel badly that I didn't ask more about himself and what was bothering him. I sort of noticed that he was distant. Maybe I should have paid attention to him. And so they plan a mass shooting, or plan a school shooting. And so that's often the slippery slope to the boy crisis. And what dads need to know and what all of us need to impart as to why it is not just dads that are important, but it's the dad's style of parenting that's important. It's important for a dad to be there, and if, even if he it has an imitation mom style of parenting, that's, that's not too bad, but he has to understand that he has something to contribute And mom has something to contribute and what they need is not dad-style parenting alone, not mom-style parenting alone, but what I call checks and balance parenting. The children who do the best have an active tension between mom and dad that leads to creating outcomes of that combination between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting that leads the children to have the best of both. Children who do well also have family dinner nights. Family dinner nights are, there's two types of family dinner nights. There's family dinner nights that are family dinner nights, and there's family dinner nights that become family dinner nightmares. Um, And and the, the frequency with which I started to see the outcome of children who had family dinner nights that did not become family dinner nightmares led me to understanding a whole series of guidelines. I'll just give two of them as an example. Guideline number one is no electronics at the table. You're training your children to be able to have stimulation from other people's opinions. But many kids say, no, what do you mean other people's opinions? Mom and dad don't listen to me, they just interrupted and lecture me. Yeah. And, or my sister and brother is always dominates the conversation, so I'm like, you know, it's not really a conversation, it's like I'm left out. Number two thing that's absolutely important for family dinner nights is that everybody has a chance to be heard no matter what their perspective is. If your son is saying, or your daughter is saying, you know, uh, the new theory is that the world is in fact flat, a theory that we did believe for about 1,500 years, um, the, uh, that that you're not, that that child is not interrupted at, with the science as to why the world is in fact brown, but that the child is heard, and then after being heard, that the people, a few people at the table are able to say to the the child, what I hear you saying is this, did I distort anything, sweetie? Is there anything else you want to add? And so the child knows that no matter what his or her perspective is, that other people will have different perspectives at the table, but he is not going to be cut short, put down, or disrespected because of his perspective. Then when you have that, and you have no bar on controversial topics boys like things that are controversial they don't want to be protected um, and um, and this and actually once girls feel safe they like things that are that really get into the nitty-gritty as well uh, they need a little bit more safety but they still like it um, and so these are the some of the, some of the parameters of a family dinner night that makes the family dinner night become something that what I when I'm doing the interviews of this, um, kids the parents tell me uh, that they often have other kids that come over for dinner once in a while during family dinner nights and the kids, the, their neighbors, their friends, their schoolmates, they just beg to come back because they've never seen a family that has that makes it so safe for everyone to be heard. What you get from that is E Pluribus Unum. The Pluribus is everybody at the table is being heard, but the Unum is is one solid family as a result of everybody supporting everybody we Okay, since I'm nearing the end here, I want to make sure that I get in a few sort of headlines that we can talk about more um, right afterwards. <coughs> it's not tequila. And, uh, Let's say you're in this audience and you're, and you're either a person who's already divorced or is a single mom. A single mom is probably the, among the, worst, the hardest working people on the planet. Um, and there's no way of changing this. So what can you do? In the event of divorce, there are four must-dos. The not must-do number one, is that children need about an equal amount of time with both mom and dad. Must-do number two, is that parents need to live within about 20 minutes drive time from each other, because if they live further away than that, the children begin to resent the parent whose home they have to visit and they have to lose their ability to play on the soccer team or, or, or have a uh, go to a, a friend's birthday party or whatever. So you build resentment. Number three, is that there's no bad mouthing from father to mother or mother to father. And the bad mouthing doesn't include just bad mouthing words, it includes bad body language. If Scott's my son and he says, you know, I had a wonderful time with mother, uh, mom last night, and I go, okay, what else have you done today? I just skip past that. I'm giving him a signal that, you know, saying nice things about mom is not what you're gonna get my attention for. That's another form of bad mouthing. Number four, we have new data showing that the children who do the best have parents who are in couples' communication or relationship counseling, not only when there's an emergency, but consistently. The consistently can be as little as once a month. But the, the, the parents need to know that whatever problems they're having or bad feelings they're having about their other partner, that these can be discussed constructively with where they're hearing the other partner's best intent. Okay, seven top things that moms can do, single moms can do. One is let the bio dad know that you know why he is needed. Study why dads are needed, because you won't find it very many places. Number two, if it's impossible or dangerous to engage the bio-dad, find your son a faith-based community, where where boys his age are able to share their feelings and fears. So it's important, yes, we all know this, to find a good (coughs) faith-based role model. But don't stop with a faith-based role model that you trust. Make sure your faith-based role model organizes and gathers together on a weekly or bi-weekly basis um, other boys about your son's age so that the boys can feel that the masks that every boy wears, and most girls wear too, by the way, um, the, the masks that every boy wears, that behind those masks are, are more vulnerable, open, Person who cares more about being loved and having a lot of other feelings that guys are not allowed to talk with each other much about. That's the difference between boys via faith based communities that do really well versus boys who just have an overall structure to give them more comfort. (coughs) Number two, uh, or number three, um, get your son or daughter, set the son rather involved in Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts. Programs like the Mankind Project, WISE, or Boys Clubs. They all have programs now uh, for, for boys. Number two, get in, uh, if you get involved with a stepdad, make sure you spend time discovering how a stepdad needs to be more than an, adv- an advisor to the, to the mother. How to get the stepdad and the stepmom really being co-parents. Number five, find your son a mentor. <coughs> Number six, more important than number five, work with your son to find a boy to mentor. Boys do better when they are mentored even than they do when they find, uh, when somebody mentors them. Because everything the boy is doing, he's beginning to visualize, should I steal? Should I be lazy with my homework? Should I get bad grades? How will that look to the boy I'm mentoring? that is very powerful for boys. And um, number seven, search for resources. If you are a resource person yourself, let me know about you so I can (coughs) add you to my website and have you be a resource that I can uh, uh, refer other people to. Finally, the five top things schools must do. Number one, male teachers. And about equivalent numbers to female teachers. And not just, and not just males who are imitation females. Males who are imitation females, fine, but also males who are uh, traditional males. Your children, your sons, need a variety of males from which to choose that match and coordinate with their personality. Does that make sense? Vocational education in Japan. 99.6% of the kids that graduate from a very large vocational education programs get jobs. Recess needs to be re- re- returned to the school system. Yeah. That's why I gave you a recess a little while ago. <laughs> um, training to be a father warrior. This means knowing Helping our sons know how to retain the best of heroic intelligence and health intelligence. Heroic intelligence has many virtues that daughters need, such as risk-taking and exploring, and a willingness to fail. But also, heroic intelligence, when it goes too far, is um, doesn't provide for the health intelligence that creates a long and healthy life. Our sons have to know in isolation that health intel- heroic intelligence in isolation is socialization for a short life, health intelligence is socialization for a long life, and both have virtues that I'm running out of time to explain. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last of the, those, those items is that schools need to start communication skills in first and second grades and make sure that parents have those communication skills at the same time. In conclusion, we've seen that as developed nations solved one problem, the problem of survival, they allowed new freedoms that created new problems. And the boy crisis grew in the fertile soil of families without fathers. We have seen but a dozen or so of the more than 70 ways that I discussed in the boy crisis that dad-deprived dad deprived boys are indeed deprived. We've seen that boys who hurt, hurt us and we have seen why we haven't cared about boys being hurt. It's hard to psychologically attach to boys who are programmed to be be willing to give up their life. And it's hard to protect boys who cannot tell us they are vulnerable. Men's weakness is our facade of strength. Although our sons are damaged even more than our daughters by the loss of family, or the loss of father, or any emotional disconnection, every boy who is a failure to launch beats a heterosexual woman without a man who is worthy of her love. That is, a damaged boy damages girls. And a damaged boy becomes a damaged dad who raises damaged daughters. When it comes to men and women, we're all in the same family boat. When only one sex wins, both sexes lose. And we want to make sure that you get to the next sessions. So, as you leave, hurry up there. All you men, figure out a game to play on your way over there. Uh, make it entertaining because I you know I will be. And if you want to hear more from Dr. Farrell and really be challenged, please follow him to the next session. Thank you very much. You have about two minutes.